Thanks, PJ. Appreciate it. Uh, Y'all like PJ? Is he okay? Yeah. yeah. Okay. I like PJ. You know, PJ and Amanda are like some of my favorite people in the world. And, you know, I knew them back before they were PJ and Amanda, you know, when it was just PJ and just Amanda. And so uh, getting to see them here and see them serving with you is, is encouraging for me. And so great to get to be with y'all and meet y'all tonight. So thanks for having me. My name's Eric, as PJ said, and I live in Dubai with my family. And, you know, why would somebody want to do that? Why would somebody live in Dubai when they could be living close to their mother? Well, the short story of my life is that I grew up just up the road here in Palos Verdes, if you know where that is, just up the coast a little ways. And later on, I lived in Texas. I was saved when I was a teenager. And it was right about the time when I was your age. I think most of y'all are kind of college age. And it was about that time that the Lord opened my eyes through reading scripture, through hearing the Bible taught, and just through, I guess, getting outside of my front door a little bit. He opened my eyes to the reality that there is a lot of lostness in the world. That in fact, there are billions of people in the world who have never heard the name of Jesus Christ. And that just, for me, was, was like a seed that kept on growing, just this desire to say, we, we got to do something about that. We got to do something about that. And so, uh, so went on, you know, got married, went to seminary, had a bunch of kids, became a pastor at a church in Texas, was there with the Burners. And um, just about a decade ago, our church sent us out uh, from pastoral ministry in that church to go first to India, now to Dubai, to start the seminary, to train church planters. And so that's why we're there. That's what we do today. And um, I'm really not here actually to talk about missions tonight, but I just want to throw that in there. I want to throw in there for all of you just the thought that, that God has called his whole church, all of us, if we're here in the church, to go and to make disciples of all nations. And even if you're not going to be the one who goes over to Dubai or goes over to wherever like we do, um, we need to see that as part of our calling. And no matter what your age is, no matter what your financial situation is, don't think in terms of like, okay, yeah, like maybe when I'm 40 years old and have kids, I'll think about things like that. Uh, but, but you're here now. You're, if you're a believer, you're part of the church now. And be thinking about how can you take advantage of opportunities to find out what's going on, to, to be involved in the work that God is doing around the world and uh, just be partners in what God is doing in the ends of the earth. So that's a free little exhortation there at the beginning. Uh, but let's look at God's word. That's what we want to do tonight. Turn to Matthew chapter 5, and uh, I do appreciate y'all trying to make me feel at home by turning the air conditioning off. Uh, that makes it a little more like Dubai in here, uh, but not really because it'd be like 150 degrees in Dubai. This is actually pretty pleasant. Uh, Matthew chapter 5 is what we want to look at tonight, and so I'm going to read the text, and then I'm going to pray. Matthew 5, beginning in verse 2. Well, let's begin in verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain... And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. 
You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket but on a stand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Let's pray. Father, thank you for today. Thanks for the chance to be with the bridge tonight. And just thanks for your word as we look at Matthew 5, these words of our Savior. Uh, may we see what he has to say to us in this text. May our hearts be open uh, to the words of our Savior. May our, may, may our eyes be open. May our attitudes be transformed as we see what is in this text. And may you give us the encouragement and the hope that we need to go out and represent you well in the world because of what we see here in Matthew chapter 5. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, like I was just saying, the world is lost. And I wish it were different. I, I wish it weren't that way. I, I think about Dubai, the city where I live. And so in Dubai, 90% of the population comes from other countries. We've got people from India, from Pakistan, from Iran, from Afghanistan, from Saudi Arabia. They're all... Uh, going about their daily business, living their lives, working their work, and they're lost. They don't know Christ. They're, they're deceived. They, they don't know the hope of the gospel. I wish it weren't that way. I wish it were different. I wish that they, they, they were undeceived. I wish the closed eyes were open. I, I, I wish things weren't the way they were. I, think, I wish the, the injustice that I see as a result of sin wasn't there. I wish that the, uh, the brokenness and the sadness and the grief and the mourning that I see in so many people in my city was not that way. I wish the world were different. And that's not just in Dubai, right? I come here and there's a lot of things that are not that great. I wish this country was different. I wish people here didn't love foolishness so much more and hate wisdom so much. You know, I wish that uh, I wish that this wasn't a place where every kind of sin that God calls evil is exalted as good. I wish the world were different. I wish people weren't so deceived. And I know you probably wish that too. You see things in the world that are broken, that are sad, that are, that are confusing. And you just say, why is it this way? Why can't the world be a different way? And so the question that I, I ask when I think about those things is what can I do? What do I do about that? What am I called to do? How, how do I change the world? That's really the question. How, how do you change the world? Because we want to change the world, don't we? We don't want to just accept the status quo. We don't want to just say, oh, well, just the, thing, the way things are now is the way things are always going to be. But we want to see something happen. We want to see the darkness get pushed back. We want to see, we want to see light coming in when there, where there's darkness. We want to see Jesus' name exalted where it isn't. We want to see people turning from sin to Christ, people glorifying God that aren't currently glorifying him. That's what we want to see. We want to see the world change. But how do we do that? How would Jesus have us live and, and speak? How would he have his people be in order to be people who change the world? I think that's the question that he's asking when we come to this passage. In the passage we just read in Matthew chapter 5, it's the beginning of a larger sermon, right? You're familiar with the Sermon on the Mount. That's Matthew chapter 5 to chapter 7. And so this part we read is the, 
beginning of that larger sermon. But as I read it, I think it's kind of a a self-contained sermon in its own right. It's like a a little summary teaching that forms the basis for everything that's going to come in the rest of this message that Jesus is going to give, this Sermon on the Mount. And, you know, we've all heard different sermons. And, you know, our pastor PJ has a doctorate in sermons, I think, or something like that. So he can, he can tell me about this later. But I think they, they teach you in the, in, PJ, is this true that when you do your, your demon, they say that the sermon ought to have two points, three points, four points, something like that. But, but see, I, I look at Jesus here. I think he's doing this whole sermon. I think it's got like nine points if I'm not mistaken. And sometimes you've heard the sermon where they go on and they have the points. And then at the end, there's like, you know, in conclusion, here's a couple applications. I think Jesus is doing that. He's giving a nine-point sermon and it's got two points of application. So we just want to kind of follow Jesus's own outline. And we're not going to be here all night. This is not a, you know, 10-hour sermon. Uh, But we want to see Jesus's nine points here. and, And we're asking the question, with whom does God change the world? With what kind of people does God change the world? And so let's look at 5, verse 3. He's going to get this crowd together, you know, this crowd of people who are listening to him, followers, disciples. He starts teaching. Look at 5, 3. The first word is blessed. Blessed. And, and blessed is the key word in the, in the section, right? You keep reading, and I just read it. The word blessed shows up nine times. Each of the next nine verses begins with this word blessed. And that's where we get the name beatitude. You've heard that, right? Beatitude just comes from the Latin word, which means to bless. And so blessed, what does it mean? It means to be, to be happy, to be in a state of good fortune, to, to, to feel like things are going your way. There's this Greek word makarios. It, it just means happy. You, you're, fortune is smiling on you. You're, you're in a good mood. And, and so we're asking, okay, how do we change the world? And we see right away, we see that Jesus' answer, it has, it's less about your intelligence or about your skills or about uh, you know, the, the college that you go to. But it has a lot to do with an external demeanor that flows from an inward reality. You are, in a word, happy. That's what he's saying. He's saying you're happy. And he says it nine times. You're happy, 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 etc. Why are Jesus' disciples happy? That's the question when asked. Why, why are we happy? Well, nine reasons. First of all, he says you're happy, number one, because you bring nothing to God. You bring nothing to God. Verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And see, right there in that verse, that's the good news of the gospel, isn't it? You know, because all false religion, whether you're, you know, a nominal Christian, or you're a Muslim, or you're a Mormon, whatever false religion, a false gospel, they all have in common the goal of, of gathering up and amassing spiritual wealth. That's what false religion is doing. It's saying, here's the things that you got to do. Here's the rules that you have to follow. Here's the the good deeds that you have to uh, gather up. And so you do all this stuff. And then one day you're going to come before God and say, God, look at my wealth. Look at all this stuff. I did all the things I was supposed to do. I came to the bridge. I even ate the weird stuff up here in the skit. You know, I did all the good things, God. Here's my spiritual wealth. That's what false religion is trying to accomplish. But this... Good news of the gospel is, is upside down from that. It's the opposite from that. It says that, that, uh, that salvation comes 
not by gathering spiritual wealth, but by declaring spiritual bankruptcy. It says that you need to admit that your own works can never be enough. You can never do enough good deeds. That only the perfect son of God dying in your place on the cross, only that can save you. It's not the healthy who need a physician, Jesus said, but who? The sick, right? And you're sick. I'm sick. We're all sick, but we have a physician. And so when you cry out, God, have mercy on me, the sinner, when you turn to that physician in repentance, in faith, then Jesus says, yours is the kingdom of heaven. So you're happy because you bring nothing to God. You're not doing it. You're not on that treadmill. You're not, you're not trying to force your way into heaven. You're bringing nothing to God and you're happy. Happy are the poor in spirit. But number two, you're happy because your grief will end. So I want you to imagine with me that it's, it's the end of the football season. It's the last game of the year. And it's the, the last quarter of the last game. In fact, it's at the two-minute warning. And your team's got to win this game in order to get into the playoffs. So the whole season is on the line right here. You're at the two-minute warning, and your team is down by 70 points. Okay? And so you're down by 70, two-minute warning, and here you are on the sideline. you got a big smile on your face. You're, you're happy, and you're smiling, and you're cheering, and you're singing, you know, we are the champions. But wait a second. You're not the champions. Your, your season's over. You're down by 70 points. You're about to lose. You're done. You're, go, you're going home. So if you're sitting here celebrating at that moment, you're, you're delusional, aren't you? And see, some people think that Christians are delusional. They, they think that when we talk about Christian happiness, that, you know, we're kind of living in cloud cuckoo land, that we're not, we're not in touch with reality because after all, this world is hard. But if we're, you know, if we're happy, despite a difficult world, we're in good company because look what Jesus says in verse 4. He says, blessed, happy are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. You know, Jesus is not naive. He's not in denial. He's not toxically happy. Jesus, of all people, knows how corrupted the world is. He knows how much harm sin can cause. He, Jesus knows the suffering of disease and loss and death. And Jesus mourned. Jesus wept. And so Jesus' people, his disciples, we, we do mourn. We, we do weep. We do weep with those who weep. In fact, Christians ought to be the most realistic people in the world because we have a theology that explains the brokenness we see around us in the world. In our rebellion against God, this world is not the place it's supposed to be. So we mourn. But it's saying that we mourn with hope. We, we mourn with hope. We, we weep, you might say, with happiness. Why? Because as we weep, we anticipate that day in the presence of the Lamb when God will wipe away every tear from our eye. So we weep by faith because we know that we will be comforted. You know, you may have been taught that there's a difference between happiness on the one hand enjoy on the other. Have you ever heard that? People, some people say that, okay, yeah, happiness has to do with your circumstances, you know, how well things are going, whether you're, you know, achieving your goals 
And, you know, that things could be going good and you're happy. Things could be going good, bad, and you're unhappy. But then joy, on the other hand, joy is like more spiritual and more kind of ethereal. And joy should always be there, you know, based on your relationship with God, whether you're happy or unhappy. And so maybe you've met some Christian people and they're kind of like really miserable people and they're not fun to be around and they're, they're kind of angry and they're sullen and they're always complaining about stuff and their face is really, you know, kind of like this kind of a face and they're like, oh, I got the joy, 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 joy down in my heart. And you're like, where? Well, it's down there. You know, it's deep, deep down in my heart. I, get, I can't find it, but it, it's there somewhere. And people, people think that way. They think, okay, that's what, what joy is like. But the Bible doesn't anywhere teach this difference between happiness and joy. We don't find that in the Bible. We find those two words used as synonyms, as interchangeably. Because, of course, if, if there was such a difference, we would think that here, when he's talking about mourning, that Jesus would say, well, you can have joy even when you're mourning, but not happiness. But that's not what he says. He says, no, even as you mourn, you're happy as you mourn. And he also goes on. He says, number three, you're happy because you're not in control. Verse five, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. The meek, what, what is meek? We don't always use the word meek in our conversation. Think about the opposite. The opposite of meek as I say, the opposite of, of meek is kind of someone who's a control freak. You know anybody like that? Maybe, maybe you are the person like that. You know, the person who needs everything to be the way you want it to be, who's got the plan, who's got the agenda, who's kind of advancing your own cause, always making the plans and gathering the resources and not tolerating those who are going to deviate from your plan. You know, I, I can be tempted to be that person more often than not. But the thing is that when it's all about me being in control, when it's all about me achieving my own ends, then my happiness comes to depend on maintaining that control, on things not happy, happening that aren't according to my plan. And, and when I'm a control freak, any deviation is going to result in anger or frustration or maybe discouragement or fear or, or sadness. But, but meekness, meekness is the recognition that that I'm not in control. That means God is. It, it means recognizing that I'm not independent and powerful. I'm actually dependent and powerless. I'm dependent on God's plans and God's providence for, for every single breath that I take. And as I read the Bible, I see the, the world is going to change. God is going to do that. Everything is ultimately going to come under the lordship of Jesus Christ. But that change isn't going to happen because I force it, but because he does it. So you and I as Christians, we're just servants. We're just messengers. We're, and in that, we can be meek. We can be meek. And in that meekness, Jesus says, there's happiness. And so Jesus has shown us, first of all, that you're happy because you bring nothing to God that you're happy because your grief will end, you're happy because you're not in control. And fourth, he says, you're happy because you want what you need. Let me explain that. You want what you need. Look at verse six. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. You ever been hungry? You ever been thirsty? We all have, right? It's a, it's a vivid picture. It's, it's like the idea of being lost in the wilderness or maybe like in a you know, warehouse room with no AC and a bunch of people, you start getting thirsty, right? You, you start saying, I need water. I'm gonna, I gotta have water or else I'm gonna die. And everybody in life is thirsty for something, 
right? We're all grasping for something. We're all trying to get, we feel like we, we need to have something. And, but what our sinful nature is going to thirst for are things that are not ultimately good for us. They're things that are not going to lead us towards happiness. So sometimes we're going to thirst after sin. Sometimes we're going to thirst after opportunities to indulge our fleshly lusts. Or sometimes we're going to thirst after uh, wealth and success and, and comfort and, and more possessions. We're, we're thirsting after those things. We want them. Hunger is often tied to happiness, at least in our minds. We think that I'm hungering for this thing, and if I get it, then I'm going to be happy. And, and see, that leads us wrong because as we're thirsting for worldly things, what's going to happen is either you're not going to get it, and so you just say, oh, I want this thing, I need this thing, and then I can be happy, and you just never get it, and so you're never happy. Or maybe you do get it. Maybe you do achieve that goal. Maybe you do find that success that you're thirsting for, but then what do you find? You find that you're still hungry. You're still thirsty. The happiness hasn't come yet. So that hunger didn't lead to happiness. But what Jesus is saying here, he's saying that the, the, the deepest longing of his followers if you're a disciple of Jesus, what you, what you want most of all is to have a right relationship with God and with God's people. That's the righteousness it's talking about here, a right relationship with God and his people. And he's saying, if that is your deepest hunger, that's a hunger that is going to lead to happiness because that's a hunger that God has promised to satisfy. And so he says, you're happy because you want what you need. But then going on, number five, you're happy because you don't get what you deserve. Verse seven, blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy. Mercy is what? I committed the crime, but I didn't have to do the time, right? I, I got off the hook. I was forgiven. And see, here's how we live. Sometimes we live without mercy and we live in a way that keeps track. We're looking at everybody else and we're seeing, what have you done for me lately? Or, or maybe we're saying, what haven't you done for me? How haven't you helped me? How haven't you been kind to me? How haven't you done what I wanted in my life? And so we're keeping track of everybody's problems and everybody's flaws and everybody's deeds against us. And we, we, we are keeping that mental log, judging people based upon their performance. But see, the thing is, when we're, when we're keeping track, when we're tallying transgressions, when we're, we're making sure everybody knows how wrong they are and how right we are, we can't help but live in frustration. We can't help but live in discouragement. But Jesus is offering his disciples freedom from that. He's, he's offering them the happiness of not keeping track. He's saying that we can treat people with mercy because we expect that we're going to receive God's mercy, that our sins will be forgiven through the blood of Christ. So we can be merciful because we've received mercy. And in that mercy, he's saying we can be happy. Blessed are the pure in heart, verse 8, for they shall see God. We think about pure in heart. The Jews were really concerned with ceremonial purity, right? You've you probably heard some of this. And they, they had all the feasts and all the festivals. And they, they had all these special washings they did to go along with that. They wanted to be pure on the outside. They wanted to be ceremonially pure. But starting here and throughout the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is directing them 
inwards and saying, no, it's not just purity on the outside that matters, but purity inside, purity of the heart. The heart is what matters. That's where it begins. And so he says, you need to be pure in heart. And the idea is that he's saying nothing is, if you're pure in heart, the idea is that that it's perfectly clean, it's perfectly pure, that there's no blemish there, that there's no, there's no uh, stain or blemish that's coming upon your relationship with God. Your relationship with God is pure, it's focused, it's, it's from the heart. It's a single-minded commitment to God and to his purposes. We could say it this way, number six, we could say that you're happy because you know what's most important. You're focused on God. God is what's most important. And see, what, what doesn't fit here is any kind of hidden sin, a life that's lived in darkness. Because that's not a life of happiness, that's a life of misery. When we're, when, we're, when we're hiding, when we're protecting ourselves, we're miserable, we're unhappy. But he's saying that, that living in the light, living among God's people, not feeling the need to hide or perform, being able to, to be who we are and be accepted as we are because we know that our every sin is forgiven and atoned for by Jesus Christ. He's saying that's the life of freedom. That's the life of the unburdened conscience. That's the life of joy, the life that sees the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. He says, you're happy when you're living that life. Number seven, we got to keep going, got to keep going. You're happy because you're like God. You're like God. You know, when we say, I wish the world were different, what are we saying? One biblical way to say that is to say that the world is lacking in peace. The Hebrew word for peace is the word shalom. And what shalom means when we talk about peace in the Bible, you know, we think about peace and we think about, okay, here's two sides, they're fighting, they're having a war, and they stopped fighting. Okay, the, the war ended, so now we have peace, right? But in the Bible, peace is more than that. It's not just that the, the fighting has ceased, but it's that things are as they should be. That, that things are in the state that God has designed them to be. Think, everything is right. Everything is in its proper place. That's the idea of peace. The world is as God designed it to be. And so what Jesus is saying is that his disciples are those who are looking for the absence of shalom. We're looking for those places where peace is lacking, where things aren't the way they're supposed to be. And he's saying that his disciples are looking for those things and they're trying to fix them. They're trying to be peacemakers, bringers of peace, bringers of shalom. And of course, we can make peace in a, in a temporal sense in all kinds of different ways, right? Certainly by identifying injustice and combating it by helping those who are hurting. But we can also be peacemakers in an ultimate sense, in an eternal sense, by, as it says in Isaiah, by publishing peace by bringing the good news that your God reigns, by proclaiming the gospel to those who are not at peace with God. But the point here is that wherever you are, you know, there's a way to live where you kind of look at problems, you look at the things that aren't okay in the world, and you kind of hide from it. You kind of turn your back to it and say, well, things are going pretty good at my house. You know, I can kind of find my way to live, to have enough fun, and, and it's okay. If I just ignore all that stuff, I can be all right. But Jesus is saying that happiness is not found in turning away from brokenness, but in turning towards it, in being God's agents and bringing about the peace that the world is lacking. And see, we, so we seek peace in the world, not because we think that we're superheroes who have all the answers to all the world's problems, but because our God is a bringer of shalom. And so as we love our neighbors, and as we address the brokenness around us, and as we proclaim good news to everyone, in that way we're being like our Father who is in heaven. 
And that's what it means to say that you're sons of God. What is a son of someone? A son is someone who looks like his father. If I see Josh Burner, he looks like PJ Burner, right? Sons are like their father. And so in that way, when we are bringers of peace, we look like God, we're like our father. And so you see here that Jesus is saying, he's saying that, that when you're my disciple, being like God, resembling God, being seen by God, being in relation to God, having the hope of the kingdom of God, these are the things that matter. Your relationship to God, are, that's the area that matters most of all in your life. These are the things that are going to bring happiness because you're living in a world that's promising a different kind of happiness, aren't you? As you live in this world and, and you say, what kind of happiness are they offering? Well, it's a false happiness. It's a false happiness that's seducing people and, and seducing Christians by saying that happiness is found in you being you, in you pursuing, you know, whatever the desires of your heart are, you know, whatever your sense of identity is, happiness is found there. And you just expressing those things. The world is teaching us that happiness is found in winning. And, and you being on the right side and you finding out those who disagree with you who are wrong and kind of crushing them, defeating them as long as your side's winning, that's where happiness is. But you need to see as your students, as you're going out, as you're studying, as you're in the world, you need to see that the world is calling you to be the opposite of the kind of person that Jesus is describing here. Do you see that? The world is saying, look out for yourself. Keep Christianity on the side. Hunger and thirst for a nicer car. Punish your enemies. You know, get rid of all the things that make you mourn. Be rich in spirit. That's what the world is saying. And see, Christians are drawn in by that, aren't we? We're tempted by that. We, we, we see this kind of superficial, chintzy, artificial happiness. And we say, okay, let's try for that. Or sometimes Christians are kind of okay with not being happy. We say, okay, we're not getting all the happiness that everybody out there in the world is, but maybe it's just okay for us to, to not be happy. And so we got some Christians that, that I know who are just kind of happy to just sit here and say, you know what, the world is against us. You know, they, they hate God. They, everybody hates Jesus. They all hate the Bible. And so let's, you know, the country's going to hell in a handbasket. So let's just spend our days kind of complaining and commiserating the terrible state of the country and arguing with each other and people who aren't like us. And, you know, you know what we think sometimes? We think that we're the exception. We think that, you know, there, yeah, there's all these verses in the Bible that talk about joy and about the happiness of God's people. But somehow we think in our minds that these verses don't apply to us, that we're the exception to them. We think, you know, these Bible people, they didn't have to live in 2021, they didn't have to deal with a global pandemic shutting down their jobs and their schools and their lives for a year and a half. They didn't have to face all the crazy people and the idiots that we have in our country. You know, the Bible people didn't deal with this kind of stuff. So we think, surely these things are not expected of me. Surely I'm not expected to be happy. We think that even if we don't say that. But then we get to Jesus' eighth point. And we could summarize it like this. We could say that you're happy... Even when people hurt Christians, you see that in verse 10? Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Then he goes on. We, we could look at number nine and we could say you're happy even when people hate Christians. Because look at verse 11. He says, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. 
So you see that? You see that Jesus is not speaking to people who live in this like nice utopian country where everybody has green grass and white picket fences and everything's the way it's supposed to be and everybody's really nice and everybody really respects Christians and thinks that you're great and everybody goes to church and it's, you, you know, everything is just really easy and really nice. He's not talking to people like that, is he? No, the situation that Jesus has in mind here is one where if you're following Jesus and you're naming yourself among his disciples, you're, you're going to church, you're, you're trying to obey scripture, he says, you know, that could be something that, that, that might get you fired. It's certainly going to get you disliked. It's going to get you slandered about. People are going to say bad stuff about you. They're not going to like you. They're not going to appreciate you. They're going to exclude you. He's thinking of that situation. You see that? And even worse than that, he's thinking of situations where following Jesus might result in you being hurt, you being physically abused, even imprisoned, even martyred. And this happens in the world, even if not here. You see that? You know, when I'm teaching how to study the Bible, hermeneutics, I tell my students when we're studying scripture, we got to look for the emphasis. We got to try to find those clues in the passage that are showing us what's the main idea here? Where is this all going? What's the focus? And there's, there's different ways we can see that. One way is to look for repetition. And we've seen that already with the repetition of happy, 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 happy. Happiness is a key idea. It's a key theme here. But we can see other emphasis on these last two Beatitudes in a couple different ways. One is that they're just last, Right? Usually we're going to give a list and, you know, PJ says, Eric, what kind of pizza should we order tonight? And I say, well, we could have, you know, pepperoni or we could have anchovy or we could have the Hawaiian one. You know, the, the last one, that's the one I'm emphasizing. Yeah, I like the Hawaiian one. Okay, let's get that. Uh, so, you know, you should, we give a list and we emphasize the last thing in the list. We can also see here these last two Beatitudes are longer. We think about, for example, the, the Beatitude here about the peacemakers. It's like seven words in the original language. But we get to the ninth one about persecution, and it's, it's, well, the eighth beatitude is 12 words. The ninth one is 16 words, so they're like double the length. You can see that as you read your Bibles. And then finally, we see when we talk about persecution, people hating Christians, people harming Christians, there's two beatitudes on that theme. Only one beatitude on any other theme, but two on this theme of opposition, of persecution. And, and so you see here, this is what Jesus has been building up to. This is what Jesus is trying to emphasize, what he's trying to bring our attention towards, is what he's saying is that this, this happiness that he's been talking about, this, this joyful demeanor that's to be characteristic of Jesus' disciples, this otherworldly happiness that comes from all these things about being, bringing nothing to God and your grief ending and not being in control, all of these points we've been talking about, he's saying that happiness, it's still there when people hurt Christians. And it's still there when people hate Christians. And I want you to see the structure here. See the structure of these Beatitudes where each of the nine, all of them have a statement about happiness, a statement like, blessed are the meek, and then that's followed by a reason for the happiness. So the word for, and then here's the reason. So for example, for they shall inherit the earth. And so for most of these, see how that reason, that second part is in the future tense. You see that? So for most of them, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. And so it's, it's pointing us to the future. It's saying we can be happy now because of what God is going to do in the future. And so we're looking forward to the return of Christ and to the, the reign of Christ on the earth and the eternity in the presence of Christ. And so seven out of the nine Beatitudes 
are pointing us forward to that future reality. But see this. For the first beatitude and the last one, you see at the bookends, it's different. It's present tense. It's talking about something right now. And for both of those, the motivation is the same thing. Here's the reason. Here's the motivation. He says, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And see, Bridge, this is true of you. That's what it's saying. It's saying this is true of you right now. Right now that if you've come to Jesus, if you've come with poverty of spirit, if if you've come before Christ and said, I'm a sinner, I deserve punishment in hell, I know that, but only by Jesus dying in my place and taking my sin upon himself, only through that can I be saved. So I'm crying out to him as Savior. I'm submitting to him as Lord. If that's you, then right now, He is your king. Right now, you live as citizens of Jesus' kingdom. Right now, that is not just your future hope, but that is your present reality. And Jesus is saying here that for his disciples, for those who would follow him, that your emotion and your spirit and your demeanor and your conversation is to be marked much less by the environment in which you live and much more by your identity, not your family identity, or your national identity, or your racial identity, or your sexual identity, but your eternal identity, that yours is the kingdom of heaven. In Luke 10, 20, Jesus' disciples came to him, and they, they had just been out on this kind of mission trip, and they were, they, it was successful, and they came back, and they were in a, in a good mood. They were really excited. And what Jesus says to them in Luke 10, 20, he says, nevertheless, Do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. He's saying that when things are going great, when you just won the lottery, when you just got promoted, when everything is going the way you want it to go, he's saying you should be happy even more because you're a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. And if that's true, what that means is that when disaster strikes or your health fails, or loss mounts and the church is battered and people just don't like you very much, you're still happy because you're still a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. You think about Peter, right? You know Peter, the apostle. So he's standing right here when Jesus is saying these things. And so Peter was one of Jesus' really close followers. And so fast forward a little bit, Peter, you know, subsequently witnesses Jesus' arrest and Jesus being punished and beaten and tortured and Jesus being crucified on the cross. Peter saw all of that, right? Then you read the book of Acts and you see Peter's later career that Peter himself is in prison. Peter sees uh, friends and family members martyred for Christ. He, he, He encounters much opposition. But Peter was listening here. He was listening. He was remembering. And we know this because 30 years later, Peter writes this epistle, 1 Peter. And if you go to 1 Peter... 1 Peter chapter 3, look what Peter says. So he heard Jesus say these things that were been reading in Matthew 5. Then 30 years later, he wrote this in 1 Peter 3, 14. He said, but even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. What's the word? Same word, happy. Even if you suffer for righteousness, Peter says, you're happy. So have no fear of them, nor be troubled. Same book, 1 Peter 4.14. He says, if you're insulted for the name of Christ, 
That's no fun. I don't like being insulted. You like being insulted? No? But he said, even if you're insulted for the name of Christ, what are you? You're blessed. You're happy. Why? Because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Peter's saying, this is a permanent happiness. This is an enduring happiness. This is a fearless happiness. This is a resilient happiness that comes from the spirit of God at work in your life. So back to Matthew 5. The whole passage up to this point, Jesus has been just telling us, this is how it is. This is how it is for my followers. We haven't had any commands. We haven't had any imperatives. He's just been saying, this is true. It's you are, not you do. But we get to the end of these nine points here. And like a good Baptist pastor, he's going to wrap it up with a couple of points of application. And so what are they? We get to verse 12, and we're going to see the first command in this passage. What is it? Look, look here, verse 12. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So you are happy, right? He, he just said nine times, he said, you're happy. And he told us why we're happy. And so what, what do we do? What's the application? And he says it right here. He says, be happy. You are happy. So be happy. That's the application. And you say, well, that's confusing. What is Jesus doing? He hasn't lost track of where he is. He's not getting confused and lost in his notes. It, you know, it's kind of like I, I was on a trip a little while back and I was with my wife and, you know, I thought I had it all figured out. We're going to stay here. We're going to eat here. You know, here's all the arrangements. Here's all the plans. And I, I had to very carefully figure that I had enough money in my bank account to cover, you know, the various expenses for the trip. So the first day, say, okay, I just got to go, you know, we're going to go eat. I just got to go get a little cash out of the ATM and I can pay for the meal. And so I go to the ATM, and I got plenty of money in my account, but I put my ATM card in there, and I get error, like account broken, doesn't work. I'm like, oh no. So I go to the different ATM, and I put my card in there, and it's like, bzz, error, card invalid. And so I try various things. I, I can't get into my account. I can't get money. I, I have money, but I don't have it. I'm not able to use it, because it's there, and, and I'm here. And see, I think Jesus is recognizing that sometimes we're like that. We possess this happiness as children of God, as citizens of the kingdom of heaven, but we feel like we can't get to it. We can't access it. We can't find it. Jesus is saying that I understand that in this broken world, as you're, as you're suffering from evil, as you're suffering persecution, as you're being slandered, Jesus is saying, I, I know you're going to be tempted even though you have this happiness, you're going to, be, going to be tempted to live as unhappy people, even though to you belongs the eternal happiness of citizens of the kingdom. And so let's say his application this way. We could say, wherever you go, whatever you do, whatever they do, prioritize the happiness of Christ's kingdom. Your happiness matters. That's what Jesus is saying. He, he, he's saying that this needs to be your focus. This needs to be your priority. You need to, to be concerned for this. You need to be driven by this. Because I, I think it comes first here at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. Because we go on in the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to read things about, about marriage and about lust and about your words and about divorce and about all these different issues in life. And if we didn't have this part, we might be tempted to read all those things and think, okay, if I just, just kind of live a good life, if I just sort of obey all that stuff and I get my anger under control and my lust under control and all these things, if I kind of keep away from these areas of bad sin, then I'm living a healthy Christian life. But Jesus gives us this huge priority here on happiness 
Because he wants us to see that an unhappy Christian is an unhealthy Christian, right? He's saying, you know, we got to find that happiness. Happiness matters. That, that, you know, even if we, you know, even if we think that, okay, I can just obey Christ without finding joy in Christ, he's saying that's not enough. We've got to find that happiness. We've got to find that joy. We've got to use the absence of that happiness as a diagnostic to say there's something wrong in my life. I need help. I need growth. I need, I need maturity. I need to come back to God's word. And you say, okay, so you're saying this is really easy and we just, just you know, forget about everything and smile. No, I'm saying that Jesus is commanding you to rejoice. So we've got to take that seriously. We've got to figure out what does it take to obey that command? Because there's here, there's no COVID exception. There's no special cases for unemployment or for chronic illness. He's saying there's no suffering that's too great. There's no opposition that's too strong. There's no hatred that's too intense because none of that compares to the joy that Christ has set before us. So this command to rejoice, it's a command that applies to the worst moments when we're suffering unjustly, and so it applies to our best moments as well. He's saying that kingdom citizens, we don't seek out opposition, but we do expect it. We know it's a reality of this world, and when that opposition comes, our first priority isn't to to escape it or to fight it or to mock it, but our first priority is to maintain our joy in Christ amidst it. You ever heard of George Mueller? George Mueller was a 19th century Christian leader known for his life of faith and of prayer. He once wrote this in his journal. He said, the point is this, I saw more clearly than ever that the first great and primary business to which I ought to attend every day was to have my soul happy in the Lord. The first thing to be concerned about was not how much I might serve the Lord, how much I might glorify the Lord, but how I might get my soul into a happy state, how my inner man might be nourished. He's saying that you need to prioritize the happiness of Christ's kingdom. Let's do that. Let's prioritize the happiness of Christ's kingdom. That's the first application. And then finally, Jesus is going to give us a second application. And to see that, let's look at 5, 13 to 16, just really briefly. Then we can say it this way. I have this brother-in-law. His name is Jim. Jim is a uh, prepper. And you know, you know any preppers? You know what that means? It means he's like really concerned about the end of the world. And so he goes to, you know, I don't know, Costco and Lowe's and gets all these big plastic bins and fills them with guns and knives and ammo and flint. And he's like ready for the zombie apocalypse. And he's ready for, you know, I don't know what. He's ready for anything. That's the whole point. He's prepared. He's a prepper. And so he's like, and so one of the things that he's concerned about is the collapse of the banking system. He thinks, you know, what if the banks go under and, you know, the, all the money that's just there on the computer goes away? He doesn't want that to happen. So what he does is he wants to convert all of his life savings to gold. So he's, he's got all his money and he's bought gold bars. So he's got all these gold bars. So what do you do with gold bars? How do you store gold bars? It's kind of a problem. They're kind of big and heavy and bulky. So what this guy Jim does is he's, he's got these big plastic bins no, paint buckets, actually, the big kind of five-gallon paint buckets. And he put the gold bars in the paint buckets in his basement. And then on top of the gold bars, he got this old kitty litter. And he dumped kitty litter on top of the gold bars. And so his thought is that, you know, if the thieves come in there in the basement, they're going to look at these buckets and they're going to see the kitty litter. And they're going to be so disgusted by that, they're never going to get to the gold that's at the bottom. That's kind of his plan. It's a, it's a security uh, practice. 
and that kind of reminds me of 13 to 16 here, because here Jesus is going to use these three pictures, right? He talks about salt, about light, about a city. And these three images that kind of repeat each other, with all three of them, he, he's, he's bringing together one idea, and that idea is this. He's saying, don't hide what you are. Don't hide what you are. Don't, don't make your salt tasteless. Don't, don't put your city in a valley. Don't put your light under a basket. He's, he's saying, don't hide your gold in the kitty litter. See that? Don't hide what you are. So what are you? What, what are we? Well, you're happy, right? He just said it nine times. You're happy, 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 happy. So, so be happy, he said. And now he's saying, don't hide that. Don't hide who you are. Don't, don't hide that happiness. What, what are we showing to people? What do people see? What do they feel when they interact with us? Are we, are we communicating happiness as Christ people? You know, some people, when you're around them, they, they give off confusion. They give off anger, hostility, frustration. Some people are just kind of boring and lifeless to be around. But Jesus is saying that, hey, if you're my disciple, you're happy. You're happy, and he's saying that if you're obeying the command of verse 12, and if you're walking with kingdom happiness through every difficulty of life, he's saying your aroma, your presence is going to be one of happiness, that you're going to be memorably happy. You're going to be compellingly happy. You're going to be infectiously happy, not because you're a really great person and people really like you, but because you're so weird, because you're so unusual, because you just can't be explained. You're, you're that person where, where I say, hey, I know that your car just broke down and I know that your, your, your politician didn't get elected and I, I know that, you know, you're kind of not in the cool crowd. So why are you so happy all the time? I, I don't get it. I can't explain that. See, we're trying to provoke that reaction in people because this is a happiness that's here to be shared. And so the first application was wherever you go, whatever they do, prioritize the happiness of Christ's kingdom like George Mueller but then he's saying that wherever you go, whatever they do, preach the happiness of Christ's kingdom. Proclaim this happiness because we are here to change the world. That's what we're called to because he says in verse 16, he says the whole point of all of this is so that they, that is the world, may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. See, we want the whole world to be giving glory to our Father in heaven. We want the people of Orange County to be saved. We want the people of Dubai to be saved. We want people to hear the gospel with clarity and bow the knee to Jesus Christ. That's the great end that we're giving our lives to. And how that's going to happen, he says in verse 16, it's going to happen when your light so shines before others. Shines in what way? How is that light going to shine? He's going to say it's, it's shining in the way that's not hidden. You're not hiding that light. And there's certainly more to this light than happiness. Certainly that's all that's involved in reflecting the character of God and who he is but it's certainly not less than the happiness that he just talked about nine times in a row. He's saying that we're happy and we're here to deliver happiness. That's our job, that, that we're ambassadors of joy. We're the messengers of a new world, that, that we are here as Christians to, to meet people and to invite them to a, a, to, a, to a new kingdom, to a kingdom where there's no mourning and there's no sorrow and there's no pain and there's no weeping. We're inviting people to become the servants of a good king, a king who, who loves you and has made you and has designed a way for you that is good for you to live, to invite people to this life of hope and of joy in him and to one day be in his presence blameless with great joy. That's the invitation that we're giving to people. 
We're saying, come away from all of your substitutes because true happiness can be found and I know the way. See, that's our message. And that's a message that doesn't work when it seems like the messengers don't believe it. See, when our priorities are secular and when our hopes are material and when our, when our demeanor is embattled, when we say, oh yeah, I would be happy if only I could you know, get this car or this job or this, this relationship. When, when we say my happiness is dependent on these things in the world, our message is life, but our aroma is death. We've been given gold to share, but we're keeping it under the kitty litter, see? I think one of the reasons why American Christianity is in decline, because in recent generations, we focus so much on fighting these maybe necessary battles that we haven't done a good job of communicating just how good it is to be a Christian, how good it is to follow Jesus, how, how joyful and hopeful and free life can be when sins are forgiven, when we're living within the boundaries that, that God has set, how fun marriage and family life can be when we are following Christ together and, and glorifying him together, how wonderful the church is when we are fellowshipping together in unity and walking alongside each other in our lives. Being a Christian is not easy, but it can be so very happy. And so, Bridge, what we want to do, we want to change the world. So let's go into all the world and preach the gospel and make disciples of Jesus Christ. But let's obey Jesus Christ and do so as happy people who are proclaiming the happiness of Christ's kingdom. And see, if you're a Christian in America in 2021, there's certainly bad news. And the bad news is that things don't seem to be getting any better. That there's every likelihood that Hatred and opposition and cultural problems are going to increase. But there's also good news here if you're a Christian in 2021. And the good news that Jesus gives us from this passage is that it's precisely in the midst of persecution. It's precisely when the external forces are at their worst. It's precisely when you have the, the very least earthly reason to be happy that disciples have the best opportunity to most distinctively show the joy of Christ's kingdom. My wife leads a Bible study and one of the ladies in that Bible study has recently been through this, this horrible time in her life. And our friend is, her name's Marissa. She comes from Africa and she had a husband who physically and verbally abused her for years, and it's just this terrible situation. Eventually, the guy walks away, divorces her, leaves her with their children by herself, and terrible situation. So, so this sister has really been, been through hell. So the, this divorce is happening, and so as part of it, the, the court in the UAE sends her to a psychologist. And so as part of the divorce proceeding, she's got to see this Muslim doctor and talk about her problems with him. So she, does, she doesn't want to go, but it's mandated. She has to go. So she goes in there and, and, and she tells us, you know, I, I didn't want to be there, but I resolved that I'm just going to tell him what God has done for me. So she goes in there and she sits with this guy and he says, okay, tell me about your problems and your situation. And so she sits there and she, and she just starts talking. She just starts sharing her testimony. She talks about how she was, grew up in Africa. She, she didn't know the gospel and only in the darkest moments of her marriage and the, the deepest part of these problems that she, that she was willing to open the Bible for the first time that people invited her to church and she was ready to come and she was ready to listen and how through that she was genuinely saved. And she, she's telling this, this doctor that, that 
that even through all of this that she says, you know, I'm thankful all of these horrible things happened to me because without this, I wouldn't know Jesus. I wouldn't have the, the hope that I now have in him because he has brought me through. He's sustained me. He's given me a hope through all this pain and through all this loss. And so she goes on like that. And this was supposed to be the, the first one of several different meetings with this guy. And so they get to the end of the hour and the, the Muslim doctor looks at her and, and he says, you know, you really don't need to come back next week. He said, he said, I don't think I can help you. And then he says, I need what you have more than you need what I have. And you know, the world needs what we have. See, whatever battle there is for Christian influence in America, it's lost. In the UAE, that battle never began. But the war for the hearts of men and women who are in bondage to deception and sin, that, that battle continues to rage. And our strategy is joy because ours is the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the joy that is ours in Christ, for the hope that is ours in him. May we press forward. May we proclaim him. May we, no matter where we go, no matter what the world may do, may we seek the happiness that is found in Christ and proclaim the happiness that is found in the kingdom of heaven. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.